Esther chapter 6. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback throughout the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom you, your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet. Esther had prepared. Thus ends our reading of God's unchanging word. May the Lord delight to honor all who hear it. Well, we have reached the point in our story where we are starting to feel a shift. Just when things look as bleak as ever, a ray of hope breaks through the clouds. And maybe, just maybe, things can turn around for the Jews in Persia. When we began our series in Esther, I mentioned to you that God is neither mentioned by name nor by title in this whole book. And I said that there was a reason for this. Today we have reached the authorial climax of Esther. So I hope to answer for you why I believe God does not make an appearance and yet 
His presence is felt all throughout this story. But first, we must discuss what makes chapter 6 the climax. To be honest, some, some of the other chapters seem much more exciting. Particularly chapter 7. I really like that one. Yet, Esther is written in a chiastic structure. A, a chiasm is a writing style that was often employed by the ancient Near Eastern writers. And it was heavily used by most of the biblical authors. A chiasm uses a unique pattern of repetition. This pattern helps to both clarify and to emphasize a particular theme or teaching. And at, and at the central point, that emphasis is the emphasis of the passage, or in this case, the book, you can locate the central theme. Chapter 6 of Esther is the center of such a chiastic structure. So today, we should discover the overarching theme of Esther. To give you a better understanding of what I mean when I talk about a chiasm, I want to show you a simpler exa example that comes from Scripture. At times, Jesus would use chiasms to convey a unifying message as well. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In this verse, we see an ordered repetition. There are three things that Jesus repeats. If you look at the screen, you will see that they are marked A, B, and C. No one can serve two, two masters corresponds with you cannot serve both God and money. Either he will hate the one, matches up with, and despises the other. And finally, in the middle, we see that and love the other correlates to or he will be devoted to the one. C is the central point that Jesus is trying to communicate. A message of love and devotion to God. This Short chiasm illustrates for us what the book of Esther is doing on a much larger scale. This narrative, it revolves around a number of banquets, which makes sense since the, peace, the Feast of Purim, celebrated by the Jews, comes from this tale. I mean, right away in chapter 1, the, the setting is of a banquet. In fact, there are eight great banquets in this book. Look at the monitors again and, and notice the chiastic structure of Esther. Xerxes' banquet for the nobles of the empire corresponds with the celebration of Purim throughout the empire. Xerxes' banquet for the men in Susa correlates to the Purim banquet within Susa. Esther's coronation banquet matches up with the banquet celebrating Mordecai's promotion. And near the middle, if you look at letters E, we have Esther's two banquets for the king and Haman. Yet between all of this, 
we see two things occurring. Haman's prideful plan to execute Mordecai and the king honoring Mordecai. If you notice, the, the, the top half, we, we see events that lead to an edict of destruction of the Jews, and in particular, the death of Mordecai. And on the bottom half, we have events that lead to the salvation of Mordecai and eventually another edict that will rescue the Jews. The question is, what caused such a turn of events? What happened in the middle? It is there that we see the central theme of Esther. Look with me at Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king, king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. Now, if you can remember way back when we were going through Esther chapter 2, Mordecai had uncovered an assassination plot on the king's life. And through Esther, he was able to warn and save the king. And everything was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. However, Mordecai was never rewarded for his loyalty. Coming back to our story for today, we now see that the king had a restless night. Most likely because of the Queen Esther's banquet and her request that was to be made known the next day. Though we cannot be certain, it is probable that Xerxes was curious as to what his wife wanted to ask him. So much so that he, he sat awake at night pondering over it. Whatever the reason for his wakefulness, we see that Xerxes would not sleep that night. So he had the book of the Chronicles concerning his reign read to him. All throughout the night, he relived the past 12 years of his life. Now one would think that after years three or maybe year four, Xerxes would have been finally able to doze off. But not that night. It may have been curiosity that kept Xerxes up past his bedtime, but there was another force at work behind the scenes, not allowing the king to fall asleep. Hour after hour went by, story after story concerning his life, until finally the record of Mordecai's bravery came to light. So the king asked, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The answer, none. For the king of Persia, this was not good. It was an imperative that kings of this time reward those who were loyal to them, particularly when it comes to foiling an assassination plot. Such a treatment, it does two things. 
One, it encourages loyalty from others. And two, it discourages disloyalty. Because you, you'll never know who will turn you in in order to receive favor from the king. Xerxes needed to correct this wrong. So he sought out an advisor. But being that it was very early in the morning, it was possible that the king would have to wait for the advisors to wake up. Yet Haman had come in early to the palace that day in order to build his 75-foot stake on which he wanted to impale Mordecai. Haman was prepared to ask the king for Mordecai's life, but he had to wait in the court to be summoned. Do you remember the rule? None could enter the king's chamber without permission upon penalty of death, unless the king held out his gold scepter towards the man. So Haman waited patiently until Xerxes ordered his attendants to bring him in. And then we read this in verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? There's bittersweet irony in this verse. If you remember, Haman did not tell the king which race was the rebellious people that he was seeking an edict for the destruction for. He did not mention to the king that it was the Jews. And so now we see the king failing to mention to Haman the name of the man he delights to honor. And once again, we, we see Haman's pride come to the fore. His ego was so mighty, he, he couldn't imagine any other person being honored but himself. So he thought to himself, well, what would be most pleasing to me? Verses 7 through 9. So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to the one, to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Of course, Haman couldn't ask for a promotion. He was already second in command, and he could rise no further. And he was already a wealthy man, having everything in life. So he didn't ask for riches. Yet to be dressed in the royal robe of the king and to ride on the king's horse, these things held significance. It was commonly believed that the, the king's robe and bed and throne held magical powers that could impart royal authority and prestige. Yet even without such superstitious beliefs, Wearing the king's robe and riding the king's horse came with a certain type of dignity. Imagine if you were allowed to travel on Air Force One. And, and when you landed, you were 
welcomed with fanfare upon your arrival. This is the type of thing that Haman was looking for. Something that would stroke his ego even further. Yet to Haman's shock and dismay, listen to the king's next words. Verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Think about that moment. Remember, Haman had come early to erect a 75-foot stake on which he wished to impale Mordecai. And Haman had also assumed that the king wanted to honor him. Yet now, the king was commanding him to, to get the robe and to, to ready the horse for Mordecai, the Jew, his enemy. The king wanted to honor this man. What a turn of events. Instead of a humiliating death, Mordecai was to receive prestigious honor. And to top things off, Haman was the one who had to take Mordecai throughout the city and shout praises for this man. Look at verse 11. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback throughout, through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Imagine what must have been going through Haman's mind as he was leading Mordecai through the streets of Susa, all the while shouting, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Or how about Mordecai? What must he have been thinking all this, as all this was occurring? Recall, Mordecai had been in a state of fasting, a state of mourning and repentance. He was wearing nothing but sackcloth and ashes. And now his enemy, the enemy of the Jews, was fitting him with the royal robe of the king and sitting him high upon that king's horse and leading him throughout the city, shouting, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. In the blink of an eye, Mordecai went from sorrow and shame to glory and joy. But for Haman, his honor had turned into grief. Look at our final verses, verses 12 through 14. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived 
and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Here we see a foreshadow of what was yet to come. To steal a phrase from the book of Daniel, Haman's wife, Zeresh, along with his companions, saw the writing on the wall. This reversal of fortune was too much to deny. Only a mighty power could work such a turn of events. They saw the hand of Yahweh working in favor of Mordecai, the Jew. And it would only be a matter of time before all of God's people would be rescued as well. What is the point of this story? If this is the center of a chiastic structure, if this is where the heart of Esther lies, then what is being communicated? The turning point is between Haman's plan to kill Mordecai and the king's plan to honor Mordecai. It is in that restless night of the king that the destiny, not only of Mordecai, but of the Jewish people, turns on a dime. This is what we call a peripety. A peripety is a reversal of fortune. God could have chose some other way to save his people. He could have chose another method. He could have just stopped Haman, Haman's plans from going forth. He could have had Haman die of a heart attack before the edict was sent out. And everything would have returned to the status quo. But that is not how things worked out. Instead, we see, we see two spectrums. On the one end, we see the sinful actions of many different characters leading to the coming destruction of God's people. And on the other end, we see God using these same sinful people to bring about his salvation. Remember, it was, it was not just Haman who acted improperly. I mean, think about it. There was King Xerxes who, who demeaned women. He ends up banishing one queen in order to find a better one. One who would kowtow to his wishes. And then, when his life was in danger and he was rescued by another man, he forgot to honor that man, but instead honored another. And when he was asked to give the order to exterminate an entire people, he didn't do his due diligence in the matter. He conducted no investigation. Rather, he just handed over his signet ring to have it done. Without even, know, without even knowing what race was to be annihilated. And then we have a Jewish girl who, who turned her back on her heritage and her God, seeking out the easy life that was in the harem. And we have her Jewish cousin who encouraged such actions. And not only that, but, but Mordecai, he let his hatred and his jealousy for an Agagite dictate his actions. He defied the king's order and refused to, re to show respect to one of his superiors. In many ways, the, the fate of the Jews was brought about by Mordecai's actions. And then there's Haman. 
the enemy of the Jews, a man whose pride fueled, was fueled by the praises of men. And when he couldn't get what he wanted, he plotted death, death to all who opposed him. This, this first half of Esther is a tale of sinful actions by sinful people leading to death and destruction. It is that domino effect, one piece after another, falling in precise order, bringing about an edict of genocide. Yet while all this is occurring, there was an invisible hand manipulating things for a more favorable outcome. Death would not be the final domino to fall. No. This trail led to life. And we'll see this in greater detail as we finish off the book of Esther. Yet it was that sleepless night of the king that turned the tide. This seemingly insignificant event was in fact the key to the salvation of God's people. Now remember, the, the book of Esther neither mentions God by name nor by title. And there is good reason for this. What the author is trying to emphasize is that God's, God saves his people through his providence. Providence can be defined as God preparing in advance according to his foresight and knowledge to accomplish his will. It is God knowing the actions of both the good and the evil and being able to use those events to carry out his purposes. For example, think of the story of Joseph. His is a tale of God's providence. Many different factors led to him being sold into slavery by his brothers. And while in Egypt, certain events, both noble and ignoble, propelled him to becoming the second highest in the land. God used Joseph not only to save Egypt from famine, but also to rescue his family. And when his brothers feared that Joseph would punish them once their father had died, Joseph responded thus, Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph understood the providence of God. And now here in Esther, we see God's providence being worked out for the salvation of his people. No miracle was necessary. God had orchestrated it from the beginning. Despite their sinfulness, despite the strength of their enemies, God would rescue them simply because he loved them. He delighted to honor them. And he didn't need any miracles to do it. God is providentially working in your life as well. He has a purpose and a will concerning you. 
And he directs both the good and the evil to see those things accomplished. Your struggle is not that different from Mordecai's. He was a lost cause, destined for destruction. He had an enemy pursuing him, ready to pounce. Yet God stepped in and rescued him. He directed the path of the king the way a mother hen guides her chicks under her wings. Because of God's intervention, in an instant, Mordecai's fate changed. If the king had fallen asleep that night, Mordecai would have been impaled on a 75-foot pole. But the king could not sleep. And instead, Mordecai was wearing the king's robe and riding the king's horse. All of this occurred because God had orchestrated certain events that gave King Xerxes a restless night. Think about how God has brought salvation to you. Most likely it was not some miracle or some sign from the heavens or a vision. Instead, it was people in your everyday life whom God had providentially placed there. It was your mother who continuously prays for you. It was your father who, who read God's word to you. It was your friend who was brave enough to share the gospel with you. It was all those horrible circumstances, whether from sins you committed or sins committed against you, that led you to believe that there was something better out there than this world has to offer. Or perhaps you're on, on the other side of the periphery still. You have not yet come to a saving faith in Christ, but God has providentially led you to this church today to receive this message, to hear that Jesus is your only hope for salvation. Know this, Jesus is God in human flesh. He was nailed to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And yet, three days later, he rose from the dead. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over his creation. And he is calling you to repent and to trust in him. And both who he is, which is your God, and in what he has done, which has rescued you from your sins. Turn to him and be saved. There are times in history where God performs miracles to bring about his purposes. But for the most part, God providentially works through ordinary means to accomplish his will. God may not be mentioned in this story, but no one had more sway than him. Not even King Xerxes. Beneath the surface of human decisions and actions, there is an unseen, unstoppable power at work. And he is orchestrating events in order to rescue his people, the people he delights to honor. 
God will not rest until all of his people are saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have used ordinary means to bring salvation to us. It is through your providence that your will is being accomplished, even as we speak. We look to your son who died on the cross for our sins. Our salvation comes from no other place. And we look to your Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.